Good morning. Uh, my name is Ali Zerik, and I'll be reading from Revelation chapter 2, from 12 to 17. Uh, to the angel of the church and Pergam wrote, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know why you live, and where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not ransom your faith in me, not even in the day of the Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put in death in your city, where Satan lived. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who holding in the teaching of Balaam, who thought black to entice the Israel to sin uh, that they ate food sacrificed to the idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who holding to the teaching of the necklace. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has heard, let, let them hear what the Spirit said to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of them hidden manna, and I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written in it, knowing only to the one who receive it. But thank you for it. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. It was great to see some of the youth and the team up here this morning, wasn't it? Um, that's, it's a really great uh, team. I, we do appreciate your prayers, uh, but they do a wonderful job of, you know, they really want to teach the, the youth about Jesus and they generally just want to have a relationship with them and get to know the youth, so they do a wonderful job of that. So keep them uh, and the youth in your prayers. It'd be wonderful. Well, we're uh, in the book of Revelation. We're doing the series. If you are new this morning, welcome. Uh, we're in Revelation. We're looking at the letters to the seven churches, and we're up to number three, uh, to the church in Pergamum. Uh, how about we come uh, before our God, before we open up uh, this part of his word, and let's, let's pray together. Our great God, our Father, we, we thank you this morning for this time that we have to gather together. And Lord, we thank you that we have your holy word right before us right now. May it be our teacher this morning. May you uh, teach us um, what it is you want us to hear. And, and Lord, we just ask that our hearts and that our minds might be attuned to, to listen and to obey. Amen. Well, I uh, made my daughter, my eldest daughter, cry uh, last week. Um, it's okay, my wife made her cry first. Uh, see, what happened is uh, Violet found out that there was going to be this disco at school uh, from the teachers, and pretty exciting, fun discos, but it was going to be a Halloween disco, uh, and so she, she came home and let us know 
because she'd been to discos before at school, and she loves dancing, absolutely loved it, had a blast. So she was really excited uh, about going along. Uh, except my wife and I weren't really that keen. You know, this Halloween disco, not, not that we have too much of a problem with Halloween, it's really about candy and, and dressing up and having fun. But we kind of had no idea what was, what was going to be going on there. We had no idea what it was going to be like. And we weren't really that comfortable with it. Uh, we even didn't know what sort of music they'd be playing. Uh, so my wife, you know, kind of said to Violet, sorry, hun, uh, it's a no this time. Uh, you can go along next time. We'll find out what it is and, and that'll be fine. There were tears. There were some tears, that's for sure. Uh, so I went in. I sat down, Violet, uh, on the bed and, and had, a, had a chat with her. I tried to explain, you know, well, Halloween's kind of a bit more like celebrating death, honey. And, and we follow Jesus and, and we kind of want to celebrate life. He's the one who gives life. And that's why we celebrate Christmas and, and Easter. I don't know what I was doing. I was just doing the best I could. Uh, but she said, you know, oh, yeah, okay, I understand, Dada, I, I, I get it. No, she did not do that. You know she didn't do that. She buried her little head in the pillow and bawled her eyes out. It was like, seriously, her world had completely fallen apart that we said, no, it was, it was pretty difficult. She's okay now. She's okay, sort of. But it, it did kind of make me think, like, oh, wow, what are we going to experience in the future with the girls, like, as we try and teach them, uh, you know, especially as they get older? And more importantly, it kind of started making me think... How is it that, you know, when they come to be able to, we want to get them to make decisions for themselves, how can my wife and I equip them so that, that when it comes to making the right decision, they won't compromise on what they know is important. They won't compromise on their own values and morals. Because the thing is, isn't it, that it's a pretty tricky world. Like, it is a world that would argue even that my wife and I had no right to say whether my daughter could go along to that thing. It's a very individualistic culture, isn't it? Our culture sees no harm at all in someone doing whatever they want, you know, as long as it's okay for them, as long as it's fine by them in their, in their choice. I was uh, chatting to Gerard this week and Pastor Paul, and Gerard put it uh, this way, you do you, that's the kind of attitude, the you do you attitude. And this is the world we live in. This is the cultural air that we breathe. But from what I can see, and I don't know about you, it seems this you-do-you attitude is entering into the church a bit more than it ever has before in the West. Many Christians are quite happy to simply wear what everyone else wears. That's fine, whatever that standard is. Or they speak the same words. We speak the same words, don't we, that the world speaks. Or we go to the same parties that the world says is okay to. And we watch the same things on, on Netflix that Netflix watches. Is this what the gospel really teaches? Now, I don't, I don't want to you know, come up with a set of laws. I don't think that's what we have to do, is it? Come up with a set of laws that govern always what we wear and what we watch. Because I don't think that's the problem, is it? That's not the problem that, that the church culturally compromising. That's not what's going on. The issue has more to do with our hearts, doesn't it? It's when we understand the grace of God... And that this grace calls us, doesn't it, to loyalty to Jesus. A loyalty that puts him first above everything else. A loyalty that isn't willing to compromise on what God says is right and wrong. Well, today we are in Pergamum, as I said. We're zooming in on this church. And they lived for these Christians at a time that their culture really tested what it was to have loyalty to Jesus. Um, here's, here's the church here. I've got this thing on. There it is. 
So we're up in the north. We've headed up from Ephesus through Smyrna up to the north, following the road around this, this route for this letter to be taken. So it's right up in the north. And the interesting thing uh, about this city is that the, the ruins today are actually quite magnificent and not many people know how, how wonderful they are. They don't hear about it. But as you can see, the city would have been just quite, a, quite of a spectacle in, in itself. Like up on that hill, it's about 335 mil high, 30 mil <laughs> meters high on this kind of rock formation made of andesite. But very impressive ruins. Uh, something particularly interesting about this city and an interesting thing that's important for us to understand this passage is that Pergamum had a very central place in the Roman Empire for this province. Uh, it had a very high political kind of position of the day. It was almost like the Canberra of Australia or maybe more like the Washington of the United States. It, it had uh, a proconsul there, which was the official Roman seat of power. And it had authority from Rome, an authority to to announce the judgment of Rome. And it had this thing called the power of the sword. So it could enact what, what would uh, be considered a place of, of coming for trials and stuff like that. So a lot of trials would happen in this city because Rome had a special seat of power there. And, and what would they do actually in the city, which is interesting, is that the juror would basically cast a black stone if it's a guilty verdict for the, for the accused, or a white stone for those that were acquitted and were free from accusation. But one other thing that's important about this city being the centre of the Roman province is that it was a key, uh, it played a key role in kind of worshipping the emperor. Uh, in fact, three times over, this city, above all the others, was given by Rome this important title of Nekoros. Uh, ne- Nekoros, was, uh, it's, a, it's a Greek word. It's the honour given to a city, basically by Rome, uh, that a city that had given the, the most allegiance to Rome and, and worshipped the emperor. And so resources were given to this city around 30 BC in order to build uh, this impressive temple to worship the emperor. It was within this city. So this meant that Pergamon, it had certain expectations for all of its citizens. And I want to kind of get us to try and imagine what it was like to live in this city, what it was like for them. Like, imagine that you were there as a first-generation Christian living in this great city of Pergamon with all of its various expectations for you to align to its culture. But also imagine that you were there at this time. You were there living in the city, seeking to follow Jesus, when one day you hear that a letter is coming, an important letter that actually had the direct message from Jesus to you. It was coming from the, the Apostle John himself, but it had Jesus' words. And you hear also that your church is in this. That would have been amazing to hear. So then imagine you're there and picture that day. Maybe it was on a Sunday that this letter arrives in this town, in this city. And you have it opened up as you gather together. And the letter's read. And after John introduces himself and then introduces the, the glory of the risen Jesus in all his splendor, then the words are read to the churches. And the first letter is read to Ephesus and you're listening. Like, what's going on in Ephesus? And you hear that they're actually in danger of the doors closing, that they're going to lose the church completely. But Jesus also tells them of the great hope that they have if they turn to him in repentance and and they stand firm in his love. 
And next you hear the words of Jesus to the next church in Smyrna that we looked at last week. This is the the church that's just 60 kilometers from your position. Maybe you know some people there and you hear the words from Jesus and it's about their suffering, what they're going through. And what they're going through, you think, that kind of sounds similar to the pressures we're facing. And then you hear this great word of encouragement, a great word from the Lord to hold fast as he reminds them that they have life, reminds them that they have power over death itself. And then the next words come, don't they, that introduces the risen Lord to this church. Jesus introduces himself as uh, the person who has the sharp two-edged sword. The one with the sharp two-edged sword. You can imagine the church would have been on the edge of their seat, right? Listening to their, their letter, listening to Jesus' words. And immediately, this, this idea of the one with the two-edged sword would have reminded them of the great risen Jesus, back in the great risen Lord and his glory back in chapter 1 that they heard. And it reminded them that Jesus had absolute authority, didn't he? To, to save or to cut off. He had the authority. And see, it wasn't Rome, was it? It wasn't the great empire of Rome that those in Pergamum needed to, to be in awe of and to fear. But it is Jesus. He's the Lord of all. He's the one who has authority with this sharp two-edged sword that proceeds from his mouth. And then the next words of Jesus come that, that are words really that those in Pergamum would have been longing to hear. And maybe they're words that you are longing to hear today. These words that Jesus says, I know where you live. I know, Jesus says to them. He's stating that he completely understands the culture around them. He knows the pressures that they face each day. The city of Pergamon, it was a spectacular city. And actually, as you arrived into the city and stepped up onto that first kind of level of the big, the big high rise of the, the hilltop, uh, you would have been uh, met with this kind of impressive-looking altar that, that was built just down there where the tree is. Uh, there, there's that vi- visual representation, virtual, sorry, re- representation of it. And that's the altar to Zeus Salter, which is Zeus the Saviour. It's massive, isn't it? It's a big, almost throne-looking altar. And you think maybe this is what Jesus was referring to. When Jesus says that this is the place where Satan has his throne. Many times there would have just been, you know, kind of smoke billowing up from all the sacrifices and offerings uh, made in this city. But here's the thing is there's actually kind of a a bunch of other gods that were worshipped here. There was a bunch of temples uh, in this city that filled it. Uh, One other one uh, was to the god of Asclepius. Uh, he's, he's the god of healing, kind of the god of medicine. Uh, and you might recognize kind of that symbol there that he's got on the right of that rod, that staff with the, the snake intertwined about it. That's actually what we use uh, for medicine today. They use another one as well, but it's fascinating, isn't it? I actually drove past a, a car uh, and it said medical something on it today. And I didn't see, I think I was going a bit too fast past it. But it, I looked, I was like, there's the symbol. And it had the exact symbol of this rod with this snake. What was interesting is that this temple was also kind of hosting a lot of dormitories and rooms underneath it. And it functioned as a kind of hospital. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? So if you were sick in this city, 
this is probably the only place you would be basically drawn to go to. This is the local hospital if you're sick. The problem was that there was many cultic religious activities that went along with that. Uh, that involved, you know, many different things of priests chanting their prayers. Uh, apparently it even involved some sort of snake uh, ritual. Uh, that doesn't sound great. It's probably not the kind of place you want to visit, is it, as a Christian? But I think, actually, of, out of all of these, what Jesus may have had in mind as he speaks to Pergamon, as he speaks about the place where Satan lives, where he dwells, where he has his throne, it's possibly more likely referring to the greatest temple within that city uh, that we have it there. It's massive. It's set up right up on the very top, the peak of, of the hillside. And you could probably even see it if you came in from the city over the top of every other building. And this was, of course, where worship to the emperor happened. This was his temple very temple built to worship him as Lord, as the Kurios. It was where um, Rome had its seat of power. So maybe, maybe it was this that Jesus was referring to as the place where Satan dwells. Or maybe actually, in fact, it was kind of all of these things. All of these great God of Zeus, the father of the gods, uh, and also you know, Rome. Maybe it was all of these. But the thing is, is that Jesus says, doesn't he? This is the important thing, that he says, I know. I know this. He's completely aware of the idolatry that was filling the city, that intertwined everyday things that they got involved in. It involved sport. It was intertwined into that. It involved healing. It involved even just the food that they eat. So much so that if you were to eat a meal, if you were to try and get meat, likely it had been offered to some sort of God. We read there, don't we, that although... Jesus knows, he understands their difficult situation. We also read that he knows something else. He knows that despite these pressures, these Christians have remained firm, haven't they? They've remained Christian, uh, he says there in verse 13. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. The church here has obviously experienced some heavy persecution, pressure as well to let go of Jesus. And, and maybe this disdain for Christians had been grown worse, so much so that we hear about this Antipas, this Christian who was put to death, one of the local church members. Maybe he was a church leader, we don't know. Maybe he was a merchant of the time. Maybe he was the local you know, basketball sports person. But what we are told is that he is killed for holding on to Jesus and him alone, for trusting in him as his saviour and his king. So it's a difficult situation. It's a hard place to be as a Christian, holding on to your faith. But Jesus praises them for it, doesn't he? He's like, well done, I know this. Friends, how much of an encouragement though is this for us, when we think about it, a, a comfort even for us today that Jesus can say to you and to I, I know. He's completely aware of the pressures we face each day, especially those pressures seeking to make us let go of the Lord Jesus. He knows. He knows those who work in the city or those who work in the hospital. He knows those who are in the armed forces 
And those who are in that university environment studying, he knows. He knows what that school oval is like and the pressures that come with it. He knows what it is to work on a mine site, to fly and fly out. He knows it. Jesus says, I'm completely aware. I'm aware of your culture. So we're told, we know, we know this, that Jesus understands what we face. But do we know, do you and I know, are we certain that Jesus would also praise us for holding on fast to him? The fact that we're all here would probably be yes. That's what our prayer is, that as we go through life as a Christian, our prayer is that it would always be the case. We'd never deny him. That's, that's our prayer. But this is what we see in Pergamon. It's the first thing we see. Jesus knows, doesn't he? He knows the pressures this church faces, and he knows that they hold fast to his name, and he praises them for it. And he knows something else, doesn't he? We read that in the passage uh, this morning. He knows that although they're holding on to his name, there's some people in the church that are holding on to something else, something not good. Uh, Let me read uh, verses 14 to 15. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Balaam. I always want to say it in Hebrew, it's Balaam, but Balaam. Who taught Balak. Barak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So it appears, doesn't it, that there's false teaching going on in this church. It's teaching that doesn't line up with the gospel so that this church is kind of compromising in their faith, aren't they? And what can we say about this teaching? Uh, we're told it's got something to do with Balaam. Uh, and you may well know the story of Balaam. Yeah, you know it well. Like it's the, the, the story of the prophet, with the talking donkey. If you're like, yeah, yeah, I've seen that movie. You know, that's Shrek. This is in Numbers, the book of the Bible. Uh, it's, it's in Numbers, isn't it, where the Israelites are actually wandering in the desert. And the thing is, we know don- donkeys don't talk. That's why it's kind of amazing. Uh, But we don't know what happened. Like maybe Balaam was just hearing it in his mind. We don't really know. But what we do know is we're told that this donkey acted as a warning for Balaam to speak only the words that God was going to speak. And the donkey was actually pointing out that there's an angel, funnily enough, with a sword ready to strike Balaam down. Funnily enough as well, Balaam ends up dying later and getting put to death by the sword. But what happens mainly in his story, the the context of it, is that uh, the king of Moab at the time, uh, he's uh, Barak. He hears that this nation of Israel, a mighty nation with a powerful God, is on the rise. He's coming through, and we're actually told in the passage he freaks out. He's terrified. So what he does is he hires this Balaam in order to curse Israel. And long story short, uh, God does speak to Balaam, and he says three times, no, 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 tell Barak, no way. No way, Jose, it's not going to happen. And what happens, instead of cursing them, uh, Balaam speaks a word of blessing upon the nation of Israel. It's a great story if you, if you go and read it in Numbers 22 to 25. But then what appears to happen, though, is Balaam says to the king, who was pretty upset with this not happening and working out his way, Balaam says, look, if you really want to cause Israel trouble, then what you need to do is just get God to deal with them. And, and how did he do that? Well, it seems he taught Barak how to make Israel compromise on their trust in him. That's what's happening. They do so by sending some beautiful Moabite women to tempt them away from God. You can read this in Numbers 25. I'll I'll actually read it. 
It says, while Israel was staying in Shittim, terrible name, um, terrible place, uh, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves uh, to Baal, Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. That's what happened for Israel. And there's something similar, isn't it, happening to Pergamum. Something that's leading Christians to go back to their old ways and to, to, to be involved in these rituals and te- the temple worship. So what's going on here? What is it saying? Well, I've wrestled with it quite a bit this week. And I think what it is telling us is this. That there's certain things that are kind of coming up for some Christians in the church that's simply tempting them back into their old ways of idolatry. We don't know, we don't know why. Perhaps it was just simply... Easier to make money. It was easier to get involved with the trade guilds. Maybe they weren't making a profit. It was hard to support the family. Maybe it was just even hard to get a meal. So they're compromising a bit. What else could be happening is that, and I think this is more likely part of the pressure, is that the people have seen, well, these Christians, they're saying no to Jesus. Well, you know what? That's okay. You can say yes to Jesus, but you cannot say no to my gods. That's the problem. And so maybe there's this pressure that, uh, you know, they said, you know, if you really care, if you really want to be part of this city, then you, you've got to come along to a couple of temple, uh, temple deals. So maybe it's just the fact that life is easier, isn't it? We'll stick our head out. We won't deny Jesus. That's the line. But we're not going to stick it out too far. Otherwise, we might end up like Antipas. But in any case, what Jesus says, doesn't he, is that, There is false teaching. There's teaching that does not line up with the gospel. Foremost, he's rebuking them. He's rebuking the leaders that this teaching is not okay. And in fact, it's probably failing to teach God, failing to teach God what the true grace of God is. The grace that God's loving kindness teaches us, doesn't it, to say no to unrighteousness, to say no to to worldly passions and to say yes to his righteousness. So that's what appears to be happening. The church is slowly beginning to compromise. Compromise with the gospel as well. They're getting sucked away and they attend these uh, temple rituals. They get involved in sacrificial sacrifices, it appears, and, and all of the sexual stuff that goes along with, with some of those things. You see what's happening there? They're holding on to Jesus, aren't they? But it seems they're also trying to appease their culture by holding on uh, to the worldly things, these idols with the other hand. They've kind of got two feet in the, in the camp on either side of the fence. What is it making you think of for us today? Like, I don't think we do, do we, of having too much of an issue. We don't have that risk of like being tempted to go and bow down to a stone temple or, a, or an idol or a god. We don't kind of have those physical things, do we? I mean... There are some new age practices that go on, and I have seen that enter into the church a bit. And maybe if your family background is from a particular religion, then you might face a little bit of pressure from your family in some ways. But we don't have those obvious things of stone gods to bow down, and we're not encouraged to, are we? So, so what about us? Well, you're probably quite aware that there are idols. There are gods in our culture, aren't there? But they're far more subtle. They're hidden, aren't they? 
actually being harder to see makes them actually a bit more dangerous in many ways. And where do they exist? Well, they exist in our heart, don't they? It's our heart that's clinging to these things, our minds that, and desires that are seeking to worship something above God. They're kind of gripping our hearts and making us let go of being gripped by the glory of God. That's what worship is, isn't it? Being, being obsessed and gripped by something else over and above Jesus. Um, it's pretty tricky, I think, though, to identify sometimes these idols, isn't it, in our lives? To really stop and think, and maybe we're not prepared to do that sometimes. If, if you did want to find out more, there is this great book by Tim Keller called Counterfeit Gods, where you can wrestle this through a bit more. And he says this thing about trying to identify, identify what the idols are of our lives. He says this, An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart, If I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning, then I'll know I have value, I'll feel significant and secure. It's interesting, isn't it? Things in our heart that make us feel valued or secure, they provide security. And these aren't necessarily bad things, are they? They're not inherently bad. Some of them are good things, but the problem is when we put them first, we grip onto them, we make them our treasure. I wonder what the idols of your heart is as you sit there. Maybe it's just that big one of the one we wake up to in the morning and go and look into the mirror. Our culture does very, a very good job of worshipping self. Actually, that's the key part of sin, isn't it? Exalting ourself above God, our Father, our Creator, our Saviour. I, um, I think it was this week, no, it was last, early last week when I was thinking through, uh, reading through the passage um, at the end of last week. Uh, yeah, I was on Google, and I think it was the Bible Gateway, I can't remember what website, but Google was really good for pointing out what my idols are and what my wife's idols are. It was interesting, on the webpage, on the side, there's all these addresses, nice dresses, and on the bottom, there's all these motorcycle parts. Isn't it funny, hey, uh, Google is probably more aware of our idols than we are. But here's the question that we really want to know. How do we get rid of them? How do we flee and resist these idols so that we don't compromise? So that we're not caring about having two feet in the camp, that we're jumping over to Jesus. Well, Jesus has two things for the church of Pergamon that he gives them. And he tells to them, one of them to deal with this issue of their hearts. First is to turn to the truth of the gospel, to turn to Jesus in the truth of the gospel. The second is to hold on to the hope of the gospel. We see this in verse 16. Jesus says, doesn't he? It's a command. Repent, therefore. Repent, otherwise I will come to you. Soon I will come to you and I'll fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus is saying to the church, turn back to me. Turn to me. Turn to the truth of the gospel, the gospel of grace, the gospel of the king. Otherwise, he says, he's going to come with the sword. And that sword, it's a sword of judgment, isn't it? Not of, not of saving, it's a sword of judgment. And it sounds like it's going to be swift when it happens. So turn to Jesus. Like he is indeed the only one that's worthy of our worship, worthy of our loyalty 
complete loyalty. So first, Jesus says repentance is in line, in line with the gospel is what's needed. But the second thing he gives the church, and this is the key. Sorry. Uh, Jesus gives the church uh, this great message that there is hope. Hope in the gospel. Let me read our verses 17. Jesus says to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Jesus gives three pieces of hope to this church, doesn't he? Maybe it's one in three ways. I'll be super quick with these, but we've got here, haven't we? Hidden manna, a white stone, a new name. What's the hidden manna? Well, I think it's simply this. It's life, isn't it? It's eternal life. You know, kind of manna. If you think about the Israelites in the desert, God fed them, didn't he? He gave them manna from, from, from the sky, and that gave them life. And of course, in John 6, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, he says this to the people when they want the same physical bread. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the manna. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. It's a promise that Jesus really will give himself here, isn't it? The eternal food providing complete satisfaction. What about the white stone, this white stone with the name? Well, actually, it's really referring in in a way to the same thing, to that of life and eternal security. Most likely, uh, the white stone is referring to that tool of judgment that I mentioned for Pergamon, this tool of judgment that was used in that ancient court setting, and it fits kind of this letter in this city well. Remember, so if someone was accused, black stone. If they were guilty, they give them the black stone. If they've got an innocent verdict or an acquittal, a white stone was given to them. Freedom. Perhaps that day Antipas was killed, he received a black stone from the people in the city. But here Jesus says it doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter what and how many black stones they give you to condemn you. He says, I am the true judge. I will give those who overcome a white stone with a new name on it. Not the old name that was stuck in sin, not of the sinner, but of a new name of righteousness, that is Christ. He will give them a white stone, acquittal. So what turns our hearts, isn't it? What trains us not to compromise with the world? It's that we have a great hope in the gospel, don't we? A great hope of... Jesus, of being with our God, of of eternal security and satisfaction and safety forever. And that's what we see in this letter that's given to this church, a message of hope. And friends, isn't it amazing this morning that uh, Jesus has that message to let us know as well? Like, he says to you, he says to me, I know, I know the pressures you all face. But there's also a word here that demands us to consider that we understand the gospel, that we teach the gospel rightly, to consider what are the idols that tempt us to compromise our worship of him. These things, these idols of this life, they will never provide security, will they? They'll never provide real satisfaction. They'll never provide us uh, with safety. But the promise here is that in the gospel, 
in Christ to the one who conquers will receive life and be completely satisfied forever. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we thank you for this day that we've had to gather, that we've had to sing and praise you. We thank you for the time that our children have had to, to learn about you, to enjoy their time together. We thank you for the youth uh, that have had their time meeting together, unpacking your word. And we, we just thank you for this time we've had to read uh, this letter. We thank you for the comfort that it gives us. Lord Jesus, you know the pressures we face in the world around us. And Lord, you know our hearts also. You know our hearts. Father, we pray that you would free us from the temptations that we face. Help us this week, Lord, when we do face times that test our loyalty to you. Father, may you make us and help us and provide us by your Spirit to be people who stand firm for Jesus. Lord, may we be loyal to him. May we put him first above all else. And may you give us the strength to put to death, to cut off those things in our heart that we try and make treasures over and above the living God, the Lord Jesus. We pray this, Lord, that he indeed might be glorified and honoured in our lives. Amen.